Welcome to episode seven of The Mushroom's Apprentice. I'm your host, Shona Holm. We'll be diving into the fairy today, which is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. And of course, the fairy and the elephant have an association with the mushroom. So let's explore this topic. Fairy tales have been a very integral part of the timeless human tradition of storytelling. Children have long been told stories in oral cultures, and that has been part of a deep educational process and a way to connect children to the natural world. As any mom or dad knows, children want to hear the same story told over and over again. And it's actually very important for them to hear the same thing repeatedly because this is how they acquire language and develop linear thought. And cultures around the world would tell stories to their, to their young that often carried a moral or a truism that served as a teaching that prepared them to navigate their world beyond the safety of home. As well, the stories of the fairy that were told in countries from Persia to Scandinavia opened the imagination of the child and connected them to the spirits of the land and also their ancestral spirits. Rudolf Steiner spoke of the importance of fairy tales in the development of children and that children who were not raised on them risked a kind of sterility of mind in their adult years. So storytelling is ancient and it's worldwide and Hollywood cannot even come close to what a good book or a gifted oral storyteller can evoke in the imagination of a child. For myself, I discovered as a child, a series of books created by the folklorist Andrew Lang, and he collected very old fairy tales from around Europe. And he published a series of books titled The Red Fairy Book, The Blue Fairy Book, The Gold Fairy Book, etc. And I tell you, I remember walking to my local library and seeking out those books and savoring those stories and studying the images, which look nothing like the plastic Disney imagery that most people are familiar with today. These were illustrations and etchings from 18th and 19th century artists, and they evoked the spirit of that story with such beauty. Now, there are many different races of fairy, and the folklorist Catherine Briggs wrote a meticulously researched encyclopedia on that. So I'm going to speak to just a few of these very many wondrous beings in today's episode. I'll start with the word fairy, the otherworldly beings defined in the 17th century as, quote, of a middle nature between man and angels, end quote. The word fairy wasn't used before medieval times. In its early use, though, it indicated a mortal woman with magical powers. Now, according to Thomas Keatley, who's the author of Fairy Mythology, there are a number of possible sources of that word, and he goes into great detail with this, which I will not do here, but one theory is that it comes from the Persian word peri, P-E-R-I. The Arabs pronounce that with an F. So when the Crusaders and the pilgrims returned to Europe from Asia, they brought with them that word fairy. And as well, 
Keatley posits that the root is from the Latin word fatum, F-A-T-U-M. 13th century writers used the words fada, F-A-D-A, or fey, and those beings were said to be different from humans. Fairy is also thought to originate from the Italian word fate, F-A-T-A-E. Now, according to Catherine Briggs, the folklorist, the Fate were fairy women who came to the house at the birth of the baby and prophesied his or her fate. And that's very similar to the fates of Greece. The early word fairy was pronounced fairy, which was a state of enchantment. And it's said that the actual fairy do not like that word, which is why you'll hear other terms such as the fair folk, the Sealy Court, the Good Neighbors, etc. Over time, people adopted the word to signify the people of Fairyland. Now, in Ireland, they're called the Danshi, D-A-O-I-N-E, and excuse my <laughs> mispronunciation, or the Aishi, A-E-S-She, and the Sith in the highlands. The Scandinavian and German people called these beings of nature the Alfar, and that's an old Norse word that was later changed to elf by the Anglo-Saxons. The people of the Scottish lowlands used the word elf, and they called their fairyland Elfam, E-L-F-A-M-E. The elves are said to inhabit the forests and groves, and they were said to be great craftsmen and smiths. They were essentially synonymous with the fairy and like the fairy in that they had royal classes of kings and queens. There were good elves and bad elves, just as there are good fairy and bad or dangerous fairy. The good elves were to be found dancing in meadows or inhabiting the air or the trees. And the bad elves lived below the ground and they were a direct threat to anyone intruding on their space. Thomas Keatley described the elves as, quote, personifications of the subterranean powers of nature. And we have further races of otherworldly beings that were well known in parts around Europe. The poetic Eddas spoke of the dverg, D-V-E-R-G-E, or the dwarves. And they were born out of the decomposing body of the giant Ymir, who might possibly be a metaphor for the mushroom, Dwarves are found in hollow mountains where they have similar societal structures to humankind. They have families, they have hierarchical systems, they are master metal workers, and they share a close bond with the dead. And the word dwarf is synonymous with, synonymous with the word troll or trold. The trolls were thought to be evil spirits or people. But this is actually not the case for dwarves. Dwarves were not considered dangerous. They were known as the hill people, and they had tremendous wealth. Beneath the ground, they lived in homes made of crystal and gold. They were very highly sensitive to noise, and they were sensitive to the chiming of church bells, which drove them away. And it was thought that that did the same to the fairy. And interestingly, the iron fences around churchyards were said to ward off fairies and other spirits who were thought to be terrified of that particular metal. Another race of otherworldly beings was known as the Whites, W-I-G-H-T-S. That comes from the Anglo-Saxon word wit, which means a being or a creature. 
And among that class, you have land whites who dwell in the trees, the wells, the streams, and then you have house whites, and they inhabit the homes and barns, and they can be mischievous, and they are said to prefer cleanliness to a mess, and they would punish or reward the inhabitants accordingly. So what we might call a poltergeist today would have been called a white among the early European folk. In Scotland, the attire of the fairy is green and they live within the hills. And like the fairy of England, they have a queen and a king and they were treated well by the people of that country. And their realm was called Elfland, which was ruled by the fairy king and queen. And stories were told of mortal men and women who were transported to the fairy realm to meet the queen who gave them a gift with special powers. I must share a very well-known Scottish story of Thomas the Rhymer. I know an elder Scottish gentleman who is a scholar of law, and a few years ago we were talking about the fairy and my experiences with the mushroom, and I sent him one of my poetic transmissions, and he wrote back that it had the same feel as Thomas the Rhymer, and he told me I needed to read about him, which I did, and so I will share his story with you. Thomas the Rhymer was originally known as Thomas of Erkeldoon, which is now Earlston in Berwickshire. He was a young man who lived in Scotland in the 13th century, and he told a story that he had been sitting beneath a tree on a bank by Melrose when he heard the tinkling of silver bells and the sound of horses' hooves. He was astonished to see an exquisitely beautiful lady approaching him on a white horse. She revealed herself to be the queen of Elfland, and she took him up on her horse and kissed him. And they traveled for some time, and eventually Thomas became hungry. Well, the queen forbade him from eating any food or drinking any beverage other than what she offered him. And while they rested, she explained where they were going. She showed him three paths. One path was filled with thorns and it led to heaven. One path was very lovely, but it led to hell. And one path was green and it led to Elfland where she was taking him. And she bid him to hold his tongue for seven years. And she gave him clothing to wear and he lived among the fairy for those seven years. Well, when he returned to this world, he returned with a gift of prophecy that he would deliver in poetic verse. And he was said to have foretold a number of very significant event, events in Scottish history. He was also unable to tell a lie. And so he became known as True Thomas. Well, in the 18th century, Sir Walter Scott wrote a poem about Thomas the Rhymer, which is in three parts, and I'm going to read you the first part that tells of his meeting with the Queen of Elfland, because it is just so magical, and poetry is integral to the world of fairy. So this is called Thomas the Rhymer. True Thomas lay on Huntley Bank, a furley he spied with his e, and there he saw a lady bright come riding down by the Alden tree. Her skirt was o' oh, the grass-green silk, her mantle o' oh, the velvet fine, 
At Ilkatet of her horse's mane hang fifty siller bells and nine. True Thomas he pulled aff his cap and looted low down to his knee. All hail thou mighty queen of heaven, for thy peer on earth I never did see. Oh no, oh no, Thomas, she said, that name does not belong to me. I am but the queen of fair elfland, that am hither come to visit thee. Harp and carp, Thomas, she said, harp and carp along with me, and if you dare to kiss my lips, sure of your body I will be. Betide me, weel, betide me, woe, that weird sal never daunting me. Soon he has kissed her rosy lips, all underneath the alden tree. Now ye man go with me, she said, true Thomas ye man go with me. And ye man serve me seven years, through weal or woe as the chance may be. She mounted on her milk-white steed, she stained true Thomas up behind, and I, whene'er her bride rung, the steed flew swifter than the wind. Oh, they rode on and further on, the steed gaed swifter than the wind, until they reached a desert wide, and living land was left behind. Light down, light down now, true Thomas, and lean your head upon my knee, abide and rest a little space, and I will shew you furleys three. Oh, see not yon narrow road, so thick beset with thorns and briars, that is the path of righteousness, though after it but few inquires. And see not that bread, bread road that lies across that lily leaven, that is the path of wickedness, though some may call it the road to heaven. And see not that bonny road that winds about the ferny bray, that is the road to fair elfland, where thou and I this night man gay. But Thomas, ye man, hold your tongue, whatever ye may hear or see, for if you speak word in elfin land, ye'll ne'er get back to your own country. Oh, they rode on and farther on, and they waded through rivers abone the knee, and they saw neither sun nor moon, but they heard the roaring of the sea. It was murk, murk night, and there was nay stern light, and they waded through red blood to the knee, for all the blood that's shed on earth runs through the springs of that country. Soon they came on to a garden green, and she pulled an apple fray a tree, Take this for thy wages, true Thomas. It will give the tongue that can never lie. My tongue is mine ain, true Thomas said. A goodly gift ye would give me. I neither dot to buy nor sell at fair or tryst where I may be. I dot neither speak to prince or peer, nor ask of grace from fair lady. Now hold thy peace, the lady said, for as I say, so must it be. He has gotten a coat of the even cloth and a pair of shoes of velvet green until seven years were gone and passed. True Thomas on earth was never seen. Well, I encourage you to look up the poem and read the next two passages. The English is definitely different, but when you take the time to read it over and over, it just comes to life. 
In Keatley's fairy mythology, he quotes a Mr. Cromack of 19th century Scotland, who describes the lowland fairies as, quote, small in stature, but finely proportioned, of a fair complexion with long yellow hair hanging over their shoulders and gathered above their heads with combs of gold. They wear a mantle of green cloth inlaid with wild flowers, green pantaloons buttoned with bobs of silk and silver shoon. They carry quivers of adder slow and bows made of the ribs of a man buried where three lands meet. Their arrows are made of bog reed, tipped with white flints, and dipped in the dew of hemlock. They ride on steeds whose hoofs would not dash the dew from the cup of a harebell. With their arrows they shoot the cattle of those who offend them. The wound is imperceptible to common eyes, but there are gifted personages who can discern and cure it." End quote. Another of the stories says, quote, in their intercourse with mankind, they are frequently kind and generous. A young man of Nithsdale went out on a love affair, heard the most delicious music, far surpassing the utterance of any mortal mixture of earth's mold. Courageously advancing to the spot whence the sound appeared to proceed, he suddenly found himself the spectator of a fairy banquet. A green table with feet of gold was laid across a small rivulet and supplied with the finest of bread and the richest of wines. The music proceeded from instruments formed of reeds and stalks of corn. He was invited to partake in the dance and presented with a cup of wine. He was allowed to depart in safety and ever after possessed the gift of second sight. He said he saw there several of his former acquaintances who were become members of the fairy society. End quote. Another similar story tells of two boys who were plowing in a field, in the middle of which was an old thorn tree, which was a meeting place of the fairy. One of the boys circled around the thorn denoting where their plow should not go. When they peeked inside, they saw a green table topped with delicious bread, cheese, and wine. The boy who walked the circle sat down and availed himself of the food, saying, Fair Fay, the hands of Wilkie. The other boy grabbed the, the horses and turned away from the fairy offering. The first boy, after consuming the food, became, as a result, a proverb for wisdom and an oracle for country knowledge ever after. End quote. Now, there are many a cautionary tale to not partake of any food or drink offered by the fairy, yet there are kindly fairies who offer gifts out of goodwill toward mortal men and women. In the Orkney Islands of Scotland, there was a class of fairy known as the brownies, and they were known to take care of the homes and domestic tasks of mortals. And there is a story told by Keatley of a man of distinction who had once lived and came back as a brownie. And Keatley writes, quote, Loridan, says Reginald Scott, a familiar of this kind, did for many years inhabit the island of Pomonia, the largest of the orchids in Scotland, supplying the place of manservant and maidservant with wonderful diligence to those families whom he did haunt, sweeping their rooms and washing their dishes and making their fires before any were up in the morning. 
This lured and affirmed that he was the genius astral of that island, that his place or residence in the days of Solomon and David was at Jerusalem, that then he was called by the Jews Belela. After that, he remained long in the dominion of Wales, instructing their bards, British poesy and prophecies being called Worth and Wad, Elgin, and now, said he, I have removed hither, and alas, my continuance is but short, for in seventy years I must resign my place to Bakken, Lord of the Northern Mountains. Many wonderful and incredible things did he also relate of this Bakken, affirming that he was shaped like a satyr and fed upon the air, having wife and children to the number of 12,000, which were the brood of the northern fairies, inhabiting Sutherland and Katines with the adjacent islands, and that these were the companies of spirits that hold continual wars with the fiery spirits in the mountain Hecla that vomits fire in Islandia that their speech was ancient Irish, and their dwelling the caverns of the rocks and mountains, which relation is recorded in the antiquities of Pomonia." End quote. There was a time in these parts of Scotland where every family had a brownie or spirit that attended their needs, and people would repay them with offerings for their service. When milk was churned, the family would sprinkle every corner of the house with it as payment to the brownie. And when they brewed ale, they had a stone called the brownie stone that had a little hole in it where they would pour a bit of their brew as thanks to the brownies. There are other stories where brownies and other spirits would assist with work on the farm or the home and a grateful human would sew them clothing or gift them with other items and the brownie would be insulted and never return to help in that way again. Keatley was told by a Scottish minister the story of a man who, when he was young, used to brew ale and while doing so he would read his Bible. An old woman in his house alerted him that the brownie did not like that book. And if he continued to read it, the brownie would no longer serve them. But the boy would not listen. And he continued to read it aloud. And he also refused to give the brownie any offering of the brew. Well, as a result, his first and second brews accidentally spilled and they were lost entirely. And it wasn't until his third brew that the ale was successfully kept but the brownies served them no more. Now on to the Selkies. In Scotland, there was the Selkie, which was known on Orkney and the Shetland Islands. A Selkie is a larger seal, like the gray seal and the crested seal, and they're known as the Selkie folk. And they live in a world beneath the waves. They have human form, but they don the skins of seals, which enables them to, tra to travel through the waters from one region of air to another. And it has been said that they are angels who were driven out of heaven for some misdemeanor. They weren't bad enough to be cast into hell, so they ended up in the ocean realm instead. Another story claims that they are actual people who are banished to the sea for their sins, but were allowed to come on land in human shape. Well, Selkies are very beautiful. In fact, they are far, far more beautiful than mortals, but they're as shapeless as seals. The folklorist Catherine Briggs wrote that their beauty was in their large liquid eyes. And the male Selkies were very amorous and they would travel into shore and they would court mortal women, but they never stayed with them very long. 
the female Selkies, for the most part, did not share that practice. And it was only when their skins were stolen by a mortal man that they were taken against their will and forced to be his wife. The children born to those couples would be born with webbed hands and feet. And if the webs were cut, they grew into these horny outgrowths and that disabled them from doing certain tasks. Now, Catherine Briggs writes, Quote, in the book Country Folklore, Volume 3, author G.F. Black shares a story by Trail Dennison about a proud and passionate girl, Ursula, Den Ursula Dennison calls her, who, dissatisfied with her husband she had chosen, summoned a Selkie to be her lover. This was done by sitting on a rock at high tide and dropping seven tears into the sea. The Selkie came to her bed time and again, and she had many children by him, but each one had webbed hands and feet, and their descendants after them. Trial Dennison himself tells of hiring a man to work in the harvest who could not bind a sheaf because of the horny growth on his hands. He was a descendant of Ursula. End quote. Selkies are not the same as mermen and merwomen. But it was known that there was a great friendship and kindness between them. The author of Country Folklore quotes a story about a young fisherman who caught and skinned a seal, and in regret, he threw its body back into the sea and told the other fishermen in the boat that he found a dead seal and skinned it. The seal, however, was still alive, and it swam beneath the sea to a cave where lived a mermaid, and she was very touched by its plight. So she swam into the nets and purposely entangled herself in an attempt to steal back the skin for the seal. Well, the young fisherman was horrified when he saw her in the nets, and he begged the other fishermen to let her go, but they turned their ship toward land where they planned to sell her. Meanwhile, the mermaid remained caught in the net and lying on top of the seal skin, she would soon die in the air, but her death would cause a storm to rage and she knew the boat would sink and then the seal skin would be swept down to the cave below. Well, this selfless act of courage and kindness created a bond between the merfolk and the selkies to where the selkies provide warning and help for the merf merfolk and often risk themselves to save them. On the islands of Shetland and Orkney, it was long believed that if the blood of a selkie is shed in the sea, a raging storm will occur that will be fatal to shipping. Other beings in the class of fairy lore are known as the banshee and the puka, and of course the leprechaun. A banshee is a female. Ban means female. And this particular being would announce the death of a family member by keening and wailing. A leprechaun guards hidden treasure. And the poet Yeats said that the leprechauns were descendants of the Formorians who peopled Ireland before the arrival of the Tuatidanan. The puka is a fairy or sprite that shapeshifts and is found near mounds and ancient stones. Now, Peter Lamborn Wilson wrote a book called Plowing the Clouds, The Search for Irish Soma, which I highly recommend. And in his book, he wrote, quote, the puka seems to have been a formidable character and a shapeshifter, able to assume many forms and to cause humans to assume fairy reality in the, in the form of visions, transformations, and hallucinations. In colloquial modern Irish, 
The Liberty Cap is called a puki or little puka, end quote. And just for those unfamiliar, a Liberty Cap is a psilocybin mushroom. So pukas have a very interesting association with that mushroom. Now the sluashi were feared and they were known as the host of the unforgiven mortal dead. And the Scottish Highland people regarded them as the most formidable of the fairy in that area. They were said to inhabit the air as dark winged birds and fly above in a black cloud like starlings. Author Alexander Carmichael wrote that, quote, they fight battles in the air as men do on the earth. They may be heard and seen on clear frosty nights, advancing and retreating, retreating and advancing against one another. After a battle is over, as I was told in Barra, their crimson blood may be seen staining rocks and stones, end quote. He went on to say, quote, these spirits used to kill cats and dogs, sheep and cattle with their unerring venomous darts, end quote. The slua she would take the form of a gust of wind that burned the skin and produced painful boils. And it was said that they flew in from the west in the mouth of the night, seeking souls to steal. When a family member was dying, he or she was kept safe by keeping the door and the windows on the west side of the house securely closed to keep out the slua. And on All Hallows' Eve, you'd be a damn fool to go out into the night alone, especially at midnight, for fear that they would take you away forever. Through the centuries, the Celtic people held to what was called the fairy faith. And this is a remnant of their pre-Christian religions. It was the country folk who lived away from the influences of modern civilization, who held most strongly to this knowledge, which was passed down orally. It originates from the Druids, who passed down the folk memory of their people, and they held the knowledge of magical practices, and they were the learned caste of their people. Pythagoras regarded the Druids as custodians of the secret knowledge of the unseen world. In this knowledge was the understanding of the unchanging nature of things both visible and invisible in that human nature hasn't changed, as I always like to say, and nature herself cycles through the four seasons every single year. And in the parts of the world that remain in a constant season of hot or cold, there are natural cycles that occur. And though each season or cycle tells a new story, it's built upon an eternal living framework. And that is the antithesis of our machine-made technological world, which is an artificial overlay that deadens the senses and divorces humankind from the extraordinary forces of nature and the unseen worlds. The ancients knew that the entire universe was pulsating with life and that behind every physical form were numerous spiritual beings and energies, and they interrelated with the world of form. That's known as animism, which is the knowledge that spirit is within every living form that we see. Now, in his book, The Fairy Mythology, Keatley quotes Thorlasius from the book Nugget Om Thor Og by Hans Hammer, saying, quote, Our heathen forefathers, says Thorlasius, believed like the Pythagoreans, and the farther back in antiquity, the more firmly, that the whole world was filled with spirits of various kind, kinds to whom they ascribed in general the same nature and properties as the Greeks did to their daemons. Well, to the Celts, 
This other world was home to the ancestors and the ancient races like the Tua de Danan. And because they understood that both the world of the unseen and the world of the seen interpenetrate, it was known that those who were out of body living in the unseen world could engage and influence those of us in the physical world. And then when we die, we enter that world while they birth into this world. The Irish poet W.B. Yeats wrote, many times man lives and dies between his two eternities, that of race and that of soul, and ancient Ireland knew it all. Well, the Celtic nations that held this knowledge, that was Ireland, Scotland, Wales, the Isle of Man, Brittany, and Cornwall, they all passed down numerous first-hand stories and the stories of others telling of encounters with these mystical beings. Their oral tradition has been called the Book of the People, and these stories were told with remarkable accuracy and retention by folk who would be regarded by some of us today as national treasures. The British poet and scholar Kathleen Rain wrote of visiting the Western Isles before television had reached them. And there she witnessed people sitting around the kitchen table singing songs and listening to stories told by the bard of the Isle. I can only imagine how just wonderful that must have been. Now, throughout the early 20th century, this mystical knowledge gradually faded out. Those who carried it were made to feel foolish and ashamed of what they held dear, while modern, quote unquote, education took over the minds of the young and led them to abandon their identity and their beautiful Gaelic language in favor of English and the jobs that that would afford. And to that, I will read you a passage from The Fairy Faith in Celtic Countries, where the author W.Y. Evans Wentz wrote, quote, the great majority of men in cities are apt to pride themselves on their exemption from superstition and to smile pityingly at the poor countrymen and countrywomen who believe in fairies. But when they do so, they forget that with all their own admirable progress in material invention and with all that far-reaching data of their acquired science, with all the vast extent of their commercial and economic conquests, they themselves have ceased to be natural. Whereas, wherever under modern conditions great multitudes of men and women are herded together, there is bound to be an unhealthy psychical atmosphere never found in the country, an atmosphere which inevitably tends to develop in the average man who is not psychically strong enough to resist it, lower at the expense of higher forces or qualities and thus to inhibit any normal attempts of the subliminal self, a well-accredited psychological entity, to manifest itself in consciousness. In this connection, it is highly significant to note that, as far as can be determined, almost all professed materialists of the uncritical type, and even those who are thinking and philosophizing skeptics about the existence of a supersensuous realm or state of conscious being, are or have been city dwellers, usually so by birth and breeding. And even where we find materialists of either type dwelling in the country, 
We, genuine, we generally find them so completely under the hypnotic sway of city influences and mold of thought in matters of education and culture and in matters of religion that they have lost all sympathetic and responsive contact with nature because unconsciously they have thus permitted conventionality and unnaturalness to insulate them from it. The Celtic peasant, who may be their tenant or neighbor, is, if still uncorrupted by them, in direct contrast, unconventional and natural. He is normally always responsive to psychical experiences, or if he sees an apparition, which he calls one of the good people, that is to say, a fairy, it is useless to try to persuade him he is under a delusion. Unlike his materialistically minded Lord, he would not attempt nor even desire to make himself believe that what he has seen he has not seen. Not only has he the will to believe, but he has the right to believe, because his belief is not a matter of being educated and reasoning logically, nor a matter of faith and ideology. It is a fact of his own individual experiences, as he will tell you. Such peasant seers have frequently argued with me to the effect that one does not have to be educated in order to see fairies. Unlike the natural mind of the uncorrupted Celt, Arunta, or American Red Man, which is ever open to unusual psychical impressions, the mind of the businessman in our great cities tends to be obsessed with business affairs, both during his waking and during his dream states. The politicians with politics, similarly, the society leaders with society, and the unwholesome excitement felt by day in the city is apt to be heightened at night through a satisfying of the feeling which it morbidly creates for relaxation and change of stimuli. Our city dwellers like these nature's unnatural children who grind out their lives in an unceasing struggle for wealth and power, social position, and even for bread, fit to judge nature's natural children who believe in fairies? Are they right in not believing in an invisible world which they cannot conceive, which, if it exists, they, even though they be scientists, are, through environment and temperament alike, incapable of knowing? Or is the country dwelling, the sometimes unpractical and unsuccessful, the dreaming and uncivilized peasant, right? These questions ought to arouse in the minds of anthropologists very serious reflection worldwide in its scope. At all events, and equally for the unbeliever and for the believer, the study of the fairy faith is of vast importance historically, philosophically, religiously, and scientifically. In it lie the germs of much of our European religions and philosophies, customs and institutions, and it is one of the chief keys to unlock the mysteries of Celtic mythology, end quote. Well, thanks to the folklorists, poets, and writers, we have a fair amount of this knowledge preserved, and there are still quite a few among the Celtic people who hold dear to this knowledge, which will hopefully be valued and cherished once again by more than a few. The Celtic people have a reputation as having among them very brilliant storytellers, and also those who have the proclivity for what's called the second sight, which is the ability to see and communicate with the spirit world and to be able to foretell future events 
folk among the Celts have long been able to recognize omens and craft a charm, whether by words or by hand. And these abilities were either inborn or given as gifts after an encounter with the fairy. Stories were told of the changeling, which was a fairy baby or child that replaced the true baby who was whisked away by the fairies and replaced. As well, there are stories of fairy brides who married mortal men. There was the luminous washerwoman by the water, the fairy cavalcade of minstrels or soldiers or partygoers, great dances that took place in the groves of trees and fairy forts, and many a tale of otherworldly beings attired in the clothing of an earlier era. Offerings were left outside for these beings, usually butter or milk or the first milk, which was the colostrum, which is very high in nourishment, as well whiskey, ale, bread, pure water, and also flowers that were favored by the fairy. They were offered as gifts. The first drops of whiskey from a still would be flicked against the walls as offering to them, and the first drops of milk would be put on the floor for them. And these offerings were given out of neighborliness or as a means to stay in good stead with the fairy who had the power to curse those who crossed them. The offerings proffered goodwill and the hope for protection and also for successful crops and for the health of their animals and family. And what is so interesting is people were known to borrow back and forth with the fairy and also take fairy loans, which were to be returned with very explicit instruction that if followed, continued their good relationship. And if not followed, would end all connection to them permanently. Now, while many left them offerings, Others sought to protect themselves from fairy mischief. As I mentioned, iron fences were put around churchyards. People put iron on a barn or a house, like a horseshoe over a door. They wore a red ribbon or a religious amulet, or they sprinkled rooms with urine as the fairy held cleanliness in the highest regard. People avoided disturbing or building over fairy hills, raths, abandoned homesteads, isolated trees and bushes, and fairy paths known as ley lines that are the natural meridians of the earth. To disturb or destroy them was said to invite bad luck and even death. There's an old Irish saying that goes, woe betide he or she who dares to fell a fairy tree. While there are numerous stories of cattle and sheep falling sick and dying after a farmer moved or destroyed stones or fairy trees. If one was taken to the fairy realm, it was said that one should never partake of food or drink or they would never return to their mortal life. Time was different in the fairy realm and those who did return would find to their horror that many days, years, and even centuries had passed, though to them it felt as if they'd been gone for just a few hours. Beltane and Samhain Eve were times when the veils between the worlds are the, uh, are the thinnest, and many people stayed within the safety of their homes or avoided certain fairy paths on those particular nights. The Christian Puritans of Britain looked upon the fairy folk as a race of devils, of course, and viewed any kind of interaction with them with very grave suspicion. The Christian view posited that they were fallen angels left where they fell. So some fell in water, some fell into the air, 
and some fell onto the land. Now in Northern England, there were people accused of witchcraft who claimed it was not the devil that they were in commerce with, but rather the fairy. And there is a story from the mid 1600s of a man accused of witchcraft who offered to lead the judge to see the fairy hill where he was gifted the medicine that he used, but the judge treated him contemptuously. However, the jury refused to convict him. So I'm going to read you the account of this story from Catherine Briggs' book, An Encyclopedia of Fairies, because it speaks to the kindness of these beings. There was quite a lot of propaganda spread among the Celts by Christian authorities that fueled fear and mistrust of them. Now, that is not to say that some of them aren't dangerous, because they most assuredly were the fairy. And many stories speak to that with regard to the punishment meted out to those who insulted them. But a great many orders of fairy are very highly principled and kind. And I can personally attest to that. So here is the story from an influential book written in the late 1600s by Webster titled Displaying of Supposed Witchcraft. That book successfully removed the practice of witchcraft from the criminal statute book. And the author was of that book was present at the trial of this man I'm gonna to talk to you about 24 years prior. So this is what Webster wrote, quote, to this I shall only add thus much, that the man was accused for invoking and calling upon evil spirits and was a very simple and illiterate person to any man's judgment and had been formerly very poor, but had gotten some pretty little means to maintain himself, his wife and diverse small children by his cures done with this white powder of which there was sufficient proofs. And the judge asking him how he came by the powder, he told a story to this effect that one night before the day was gone, he was going home from his labor, being very sad and full of heavy thoughts, not knowing how to get meat and drink for his wife and children. He met a fair woman in fine cloths who asked him why he was so sad, and he told her that it was by reason of his poverty, to which she said that if he would follow her counsel, she would help him to that which would serve to get him a good living, to which he said he would consent with all his heart, so it were not by unlawful ways. She told him that it should not be by any such ways, but by doing of good and curing of sick people, and so warning him strictly to meet her there the next night at the same time, she departed from him, and he went home. And the next night, at the time appointed, he duly waited, and she, according to her promise, came and told him that it was well he came so duly, otherwise he had missed of that benefit that she intended to do unto him, and so bade him follow her and not be afraid. Thereupon she led him to a little hill, and she knocked three times, and the hill opened, and they went in, and came to a fair hall, wherein was a queen sitting in great state, and many people about her, and the gentlewoman that brought him, presented him to the queen, and she said he was welcome, and bid the gentlewoman give him some of the white powder, and teach him how to use it which she did, and gave him a little wood box full of the white powder, and had him give two or three grains of it to any that were sick, and it would heal them. And so she brought him forth of the hill, and so they parted. And being asked by the judge whether the place within the hill, which he called a hall, were light or dark, he said indifferent, 
as it is with us in the twilight. And being asked how he got more powder, he said when he wanted, he went to the hill and knocked three times and said every time, I am coming, I am coming. Whereupon it opened, and he going in was conducted by the aforesaid woman to the queen, and so had more powder given him. This was plain and simple story, however he may be judged of, that he told before the judge, the whole court, and the jury, and there being no proof but what cures he had done to very many. The jury did acquit him, and I remember the judge said when all the evidence was heard that if it were he to assign his punishment, he should be whipped thence to Fairy Hall, and did seem to judge it to be a delusion or imposture. End quote. Let's talk about the she. She is the Gaelic word for fairy. It means the mounds or hills, and the she were known as the people of the mounds or the people of the hills. Now, some of these mounds were ancient, ancient burial grounds. So the Aishi, as they were also called, were thought to be the pre-Celtic occupants of Ireland. This is a later use of the word she. However, the older texts use the word she, S-I-D-H, to mean the palaces, courts, halls, or residences of the otherworldly beings who live there. A book published in 1880 titled Popular Tales of Ireland states that the word she is synonymous with immortal and is compared with words such as sidsat, which means they wait, remain, and sithbel, which means lasting, and also sithbuan, meaning perpetual, and shib, meaning long life. And to those who speak Gaelic, please forgive my pronunciations. They're also referred to as the lordly ones, the good people. And they're a spirit race of the ancient Celts, and they are the source of the fairy lineage. I have experienced them personally as tall and beautiful and very noble, and that is indeed how they are described in Celtic literature. They are not diminutive little tinkerbells, and they possess great wisdom and knowledge. They are the Tua de Danan or Tuatha de Danann, and they were a tribe of the goddess Danu. They were magical beings, and they showed up in Ireland in the fourth wave of the invaders. They were and still are masters of sorcery and magic, and they are not to be trifled with. They fought the original inhabitants at that time, known as the Firbog, and they won. And then later, the Milesians, or the Sons of Mill, as they were called, showed up, and there was an epic battle, and the Tua de Danan lost, and that was when they retreated. They retreated to Tirnanog, which is the land of eternal youth to the west of Ireland, and they also retreated beneath Ireland, beneath the ground. It's said that when the Shi are around, the wind picks up and becomes a kind of whirlwind, and that's called a she gri. And one might hear the humming of thousands of honeybees when the she are near. The Irish poet W.B. Yeats wrote of the she, quote, the gods of ancient Ireland, the Tua de Danan, or the tribes of the goddess Danu, or the she from Aishi or Sluashi, the people of the fairy hills, as these words are usually explained, still ride the country as of old. She is also Gaelic for wind, and certainly the she of much to do with the wind. When the country people see the leaves whirling on the road, they bless themselves because they believe the she to be passing by. End quote. 
Another definition of the she comes from an M.L. Rosenthal, who wrote, quote, thus the she are more than mere fairies in the ordinary sense. They are supernatural beings of a more exalted character. Yeats sometimes thinks of them as including all mythical heroes and at other times makes them quite sinister. To be touched by them is to be set apart from other mortals, an ambivalent condition common to all who succumb to enchantment." End quote. Through the ages, the she have been in contact with mortals, and some of those fortunate souls were gifted with healing and protection, and some received the gifts of smithcraft and poetry. The she were thought by some to have been sent from the stars to teach humanity about love and living in harmony with nature. They can be as I've said, immensely kind, unless they are crossed in some way, and then they will respond with anger in the form of a curse upon the perpetrator and his descendants. So I am going to conclude this first half of the episode with a poem by W.B. Yeats titled The Hosting of the She. And I want to first explain his references. In the first line, he refers to the she as the host and says they are coming from Nachnare. Now I have been to Nachnare when I led a few tours in Ireland with a very magical poet named John Wilmot. Nachnare is a thousand foot mountain located just a few miles from Sligo town. And that's near where my little group stayed. And there's a very large mound at the top of Nachnare. And it's made of loose stones, and that's known as Maeve's Cairn. And it's the largest cairn in Ireland. It's never been opened, but it's thought to hold a Neolithic passage tomb, which would date back to around 3000 BC. Now, Maeve, for those who don't know, was a legendary warrior queen, and she ruled over Connacht during the time of Cúchulainn, and Cúchulainn was the greatest of all Irish warriors. If you want to learn more about Irish mythology, I very highly recommend reading Lady Gregory's Complete Irish Mythology. She translated the ancient myths, and she is the most beautiful writer, I must tell you. And W.B. Yeats wrote the preface for that book. And as well, by W.B. Yeats, you can read Irish folk and fairy tales. And I have read every one in this book. Oh, my goodness. I, I just can't recommend that enough. Well, Yeats wrote about Queen Maeve's cairn, saying, quote, the country people say that Maeve, still a great queen of the Western, she is buried in the cairn of stones. Okay, so in his poem, he also speaks of a character named Kilcha, who was a nephew of Finn McCool. And he was, Kilcha was a great storyteller. He could outrun everyone, and he had the ability to communicate with animals. Yeats also spoke of Neve, who is the daughter of Mananan Maclir, the god of the sea. Neve is one of the queens of Tirnanog, the land of eternal youth, and she is the lover of Oisin, the great warrior of the Fianna. 
He also speaks to the Cluth Naber, who is a fairy who sought death in the deepest lake in the world, which she found in Sligo. So I will read this beautiful poem by Yeats and invite those interested in learning more about the fairy to head over to themushroomsapprentice.com and subscribe to listen to the second hour. The Hosting of the She. The host is riding from Nok Nare, and over the grave of Cluth Naber, Kilcha tossing his burning hair, and Neve calling, Away, come away, empty your heart of its mortal dream. The winds awaken, the leaves swirl round, our cheeks are pale, our hair is unbound, our breasts are heaving, our eyes are agleam, our arms are waving, our lips are apart. And if any gaze on our rushing band, we come between him and the deed of his hand, we come between him and the hope of his heart. The host is rushing twixt night and day. And where is there hope or deed as fair? Kilcha tossing his burning hair and Neve calling, away, come away.